In the Perspectrum podcast, we discuss controversial topics. Outside of this context, Michael and I are both working professionals. While doing the show, we are not acting as agents or representatives of our respective institutions. And none of the views that we express reflect the outlooks of our employers. So don't come to my office and throw toilet paper at me. And I don't have an office, but don't come to my cube. Welcome to the Perspectrum. I'm Nathan Seelove. And I'm Michael Bloom. And today we have a super exciting episode to share with you all. Uh, Our first segment, we're going to talk about Ron DeSantis and some of the horrific laws that he has been passing over the last few weeks. Dude, as I was going over those, I was like stunned. Yeah. Like every one I read about was like worse than the last. And it's just, it's fucking insane. Too much yeah. has happened in that state in the last it, like two months. It really, it really did cause me to reconsider my big uh, endorsement announcement. You know, <laughs> you were like, "Hmm, has I, he I, done I, enough?" Yeah, <laughs> like I was considering it, but eh. dude, dude, we'll get there. I like if it's if it's between DeSantis and Trump. Mm. Oh, I'm voting for Trump. Yeah, <laughs> like, I think so. I like, mean, we I'm, said like we said before, DeSantis is more of a threat, but like DeSantis I, is more of a threat. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, we'll get we'll so, get. So yeah, g- give me those two choices. I'm voting for Trump. It's I'm sorry. weird. It's a weird <laughs> position to be in. I would I know. vote for the criminal. I would vote for the criminal over the the war criminal who will never be charged. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then for our second segment. We're going to talk about objectivity in the media and whether or not that's actually a good thing. Ooh. <laughs> I feel like I feel like I'm excited for that one uh, cuz like we have a bit of a special surprise about that segment that's going to introduce a bit of a new series. So you're going to have to wait and see uh what you can expect from that uh that part of the show in the future. Yeah. Yeah. Nice little tease right there. Mm-hmm. Speaking such of a, a tease, you're such a tease. <laughs> let's get into it. <laughs> okay, so oh, oh, DeSantis is such a tease. I don't know if he's a tease. I feel like he's more of like like an unsolicited like l- dick pic live photo. <laughs> so <laughs> not he's like the opposite of a tease. It's like r- way in your face. The things you never wanted. Like yeah. that's what DeSantis is bringing to the table. Um, yeah. If you God. didn't think the land of enormous bugs, invasive snakes, and alligators could get worse, DeSantis yeah. made that his platform as governor. Alligators are literally my worst fear in the world, and they're only my second least favorite part of Florida right now. <laughs> <laughs> seriously, seriously. So I thought that maybe... DeSantis would slow down. Maybe he'd accomplished his horrible legislative agenda, having done so many terrible things in the past. But he has served up a brand new steaming hot batch of fucking horrible bills uh, to punish the poor residents of Florida that put him in office by 20%. Um, (laughs) Yikes. That hurts. Yeah. Yeah. Well, initially it was only by like, what, half a percentage point? Hmm. Like yeah, when his, we, when he first entered office, they and then almost, they kept him there. They almost had Andrew Gillum. Yeah, they were they so close. Had Andrew Gillum. And then they were like, "Hmm, this this uh this this steaming hot pile of bullshit pie is delicious. Let's <laughs> sign me up." <laughs> God, God, yeah. I I just you know how it is where if you if you took 
a true or false quiz and you just filled in random answers, mm-hmm. statistically, you're probably going to get somewhere around 50% of them correct. Sure. The only way that you could possibly get every single answer incorrect is if you knew what the right answer was and purposely didn't do it. Mm. And I feel like that's that perfectly encapsulates Ron DeSantis <laughs> and is why I put him in the, in the category of evil motherfucker rather than just dumbass. I That is such an, a well-articulated point. Like, you're totally right. He if If he were just a normal level of, like, ignorant or bad or frustrating or whatever he would probably get stuff right periodically he's passed tons of legislation you'd think that like maybe one of them would be okay he is passed exclusively horseshit um (laughs) and okay so we've talked about ronda sanders before in the context of the like presidential election but we don't often talk about state governors and state governments like in in themselves right like we're more of a federal show we'd more talk about that um but i'd say there are like three main reasons why you should give a shit about ron DeSantis and florida one maybe we should be paying more attention as individuals to the actions of state governments and legislative bodies they they really do control so many more aspects of our lives and so many of the protections that we kind of take for granted are mainly only truly enforced on the federal government. And so there's a true risk of state lawmakers running afoul of them. And the second reason is that we are seeing a real trend of states taking that license and really running with it. Um, we saw it with all of the ab- abortion laws. And we're, and what we are keep seeing is like a single state will do something kind of outlandish and then find success there and other states will follow suit. And so like the potential to have literally half the country controlled by governments that impose draconian laws um, is like really, it's really palpable. Like there's totally that risk. And finally, which the, the reason that we kind of teased at the beginning is Ron DeSantis specific, which is like, he's currently this person, the Republican second most likely to be president. Yeah. And, like these are the kinds of legislative moves that we might be able to expect from him as president. And a point that we made previously is like certain of these laws he would be able to implement by himself, right? By changing some of the instructions that go out to the various executive agencies. So, yeah. you know, something like limiting education uh, or limiting funding for education or some like some of the laws we're going to talk about, he might be able to implement, at least for a period of time, um, even if they get challenged in court, implement for a bit just by himself without yeah. the legislature. So he's truly yeah, dangerous as order. an individual, as president, because, yeah, because of the powers of, of, of the executive. Yeah, absolutely. And another thing that we're seeing is that a lot of these laws are complete virtue signals and they're purposely they're purposely written to be vague enough that he can pretend to have plausible deniability Mm -hmm. but enough of a dog whistle to bring the most horrible people in the country on board yes yeah they are so shittily written yeah especially when you compare one law to another we'll talk through an example of this later but like it's 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 total fucking bullshit like they're just so so poorly written partially it's 
totally by design. Partially it's about just getting in the headlines and getting attention because he's been running for president for a while, just not on the official ballot. I mean, we broke down the don't say gay bill. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that we said was that it was purposely written so that the policies on a local level would almost certainly reflect specific anti-LGBTQ sentiment Mm -hmm. that in some cases could prevent teachers from uh, from like having a picture of their significant other Mm -hmm. uh, if their significant other is the same gender. Um, And of course, Ron DeSantis pretended like, oh, that's the stupidest accusation of the world. That would never happen. Mm -hmm. And it fucking happened. Yeah. 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 But yeah, your point about plausible deniability is so fair. But on top of that, to your point, like it enables through a lot of the enforcement mechanisms, which in some cases are like, you know, specific boards that are supposed to be established by the state with members appointed by the governor. In other cases, it's like giving parents the ability to sue schools, as in the Don't Say Gay Bill example, sue schools over like um, the the aspects of this law. What it enables is hyper-local enforcement and hyper-local rules, which means that it's very difficult to tell ahead of time what's going to violate these laws, which means that if you are running an organization, you pretty much are forced to to interpret these laws in the most strict, most harsh fashion in order to avoid getting sued or held liable or like like generally being uh, held criminally liable for running afoul of these laws. Yeah. For, furthermore, this also gives DeSantis sound bites because yeah. what happens when he creates these laws or when he signs these laws is that a journalist asks him a question about the law mm-hmm. and he uses that bullshit plausible deniability to speak over them, pretends to be this great hero crusading against the evil, terrible media. Yeah. And then he can clip out uh, his his outburst put it on some campaign ad and pretends to be a huge hero when in mm. actuality he's just refusing to answer the question because if he actually answered it honestly, yeah, he'd have to admit that he's a bigoted piece of shit. Yeah. And he knows that everybody on his side is going to interpret the laws in the way most favorable to him and yep. everybody on the other side won't, but he doesn't care about them because they're not the votes that he wants to get. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about some of these horrible laws that he is recently signed and will be going into effect uh, shortly. First off is the Protections of Medical Conscience Bill. You may have heard about this one. It's been in the news. This bill allows doctors in Florida to discriminate against LGBTQ people and deny them service with no ramifications for doing this, you know, for, for, for taking this action and no obligation to refer them to any other medical service provider. Yeah, yeah. And this is for both providers and payers. Yes. So Pro- both yeah. insurance companies and doctors. Yes. And, and, and also, they have a pretty broad definition of this as well, because it also applies to nurses, it applies mm-hmm. to students, it applies to pharmacists. And what's interesting, because, you know, you're... What DeSantis would do, what DeSantis is going to say when a when a person in the media asks him, hey, some of your critics say that this is going to give people license to discriminate against LGBT people. Um, what would you say to that? He's going to be like, read the bill. Read the bill. <laughs> Where does it say that? Where does it say that you can discriminate against? Like, it doesn't say that. God. Yeah, exactly. Like, that's what he's going to say. Yeah. Here's the thing. That is a completely dishonest argument. Mm-hmm. Here's why. 
There is a provision of the bill that specifically does talk about how the section it says this is I'm reading from the actual text of the bill quote this section may not be construed to waive or modify any duty a healthcare provider or healthcare payer may have to provide or pay uh, for other healthcare services that do not violate their right of medical conscience uh, to waive or modify any duty to provide any informed consent required by law or to allow a healthcare provider or payer to opt out of providing healthcare services to any patient or potential patient because of that patient's or potential patient's race, color, religion, sex, or national origin. Mm -hmm. Explicitly, it does not say sexual orientation and it does not say gender identity. Yep. Exactly. So the bill knows, the way it's written, the bill knows that this can be used to deny certain people. Yeah. And they gave a list of people that that doesn't apply to and specifically left sexual orientation mm -hmm. and gender identity out of the bill. Yeah. So when DeSantis comes out there and says, oh, it doesn't even mention sexual orientation or gender identity. Yes. And that's the fucking problem. Yes. Yeah. So if you as a medical provider or payer, and we should, we have to emphasize the payer piece claim to have a religious moral or ethical belief you can deny service to anyone as long as it's not on the basis of race color sex national origin or or religion which is absurd access to health care is a fundamental part of being a human being yeah you do not get to live if you do not get to receive medical care now it yeah. does prevent it does it does require that hospitals stabilize a patient who's in emergency condition. So they can't refuse service to uh you know an LGBTQ person if they're not in stable condition. So they've got to stabilize them and then they can throw them out of the hospital. Yeah. It's also like continues to be vague because sincerely held religious, moral and ethical beliefs are not well defined which means that you can just, you know, look someone up and down and decide that they're not the patient for you and just deny them service. And going back to the, to the insurance providers piece, this is really important because we know the business of insurance is not to pay for things, but to avoid paying for things. Yeah. That's how you make money as an insurance company is by accepting premiums and paying out as little as possible. Yeah. And now, as little as possible can mean things like denying PrEP treatments to prevent HIV. It could yeah. mean things like denying gender-affirming care. You know? Maybe you don't like premarital sex and, like, you've got carve-outs that if the if person's, like, under 18 or whatever, there's no—you can't, you know, provide them with birth control or won't be covered. Like, the bill is both so vague and expansive and also— like in in what it leaves out is so clear that it is enabling medical providers and payers to just let a whole segment of the population die. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that is not hyperbolic. That's no. That's what the bill says. That's what the bill lays out. And it also prevents taking away licensure or providing licensure to people that have expressed views about who deserves health care. And I just like to point out this completely goes against the Hippocratic Oath. Yeah. <laughs> like 
do no harm. Mm -hmm. I'm just saying any doctor, any doctor that would let somebody die or come to harm because of their identity, because they're gay or transgender or whatever, should have their license immediately revoked. Yeah. Immediately. They should not have a license because they are not practicing the ethics of the medical profession. Exactly. It, it's required that you take that oath to become yeah. a doctor. It is no fucking joke. Yeah. And I would like to point one thing out, though. A potential loophole that I think anybody who files a lawsuit or yep. whatever should absolutely exploit. Mm -hmm. Think back to what I said about the non-discrimination clause. It does say sex. Yes. And according to Supreme Court precedent, the use of sex in non-discrimination laws can be applied to sexual orientation and gender identity. Mm -hmm. That has been established on the Supreme Court level. This Supreme Court, in fact, yes. Neil has Gorsuch, upheld that as a precedent. Neil Gorsuch wrote the opinion affirming that. Yes. We have a conservative court on record saying yeah. uh, sex includes sexual orientation and gender identity. Yeah. So if I were doing any lawsuits, uh, if I were a hospital that was going to say, you know what, if, if, any, if anybody on my staff uh, refuses to treat somebody because of their sexual orientation or their gender identity, fired. Mm -hmm. And when they sue, I would use that as the defense. Yep. I would use that as the defense. Because again, when it comes to a person's sexual orientation, you have to take into account their sex. All right? If a person is married to a man and you decide, well, you're a man who's married to another man, therefore I'm going to discriminate against you, but you wouldn't have discriminated against them if they were a woman, then by necessity, you are taking sex into account. Mm -hmm. If a person is transgender, if a person is, is a trans woman, all right, someone who was born with a penis but identifies as a woman, if they had been born with a vagina, then you wouldn't discriminate against them. Mm -hmm. But because they were born with a penis, you are discriminated against them, which by necessity, again, that means that you are taking sex into account when you are discriminating against that person. Mm-hmm. And the Supreme Court has upheld that. Yeah. So, there. yeah, I agree. There is a ray of sunshine. I will say, for so many of these laws, I mean, we talked about it right at the beginning. They're so vague. So many of these laws are so vague or so poorly written or so clearly unconstitutional that at some point, when if it ever gets to a district, you know, a federal district court or an appeals court or even the Supreme Court that's reasonable in any sense, they will be overturned. Yeah. But the problem is it takes so long to get there, sometimes years. And in the meantime, people will die. Yeah. And Ron DeSantis doesn't even care about that. This yeah. is a virtue signal. He's yeah, trying exactly. to get people to vote for him. He doesn't exactly. give a shit about this. He doesn't yeah. care about this one way or another. Yeah. All right. For sure. He's doing, he, he doesn't care if it gets struck down. If it gets struck down, he can just be like, well, I tried and I fought really hard mm -hmm. and we just need to get more conservatives into the judgeship. Exactly. So keep voting for me. Yes, like, exactly. It's a win-win. Yeah. Yeah. Win -win. It's a win-win completely. Real quick, you know what I will say? Uh, this specific law does not carve out any exception for political ideology in terms of discrimination, <laughs> which means that maybe a, uh, a doctor within the state of Florida could have a moral objection against treating douchebags. <laughs> and uh, if somebody, if a douchebag... Specifically, maybe Ron DeSantis were to get sick and go to the doctors. 
I sincerely hope that that doctor does not have a moral objection to treating douchebags mm. because nobody should Christy. be denied medical care, in my opinion. <laughs> oh, man. I love you, buddy. <laughs> <You're the best. laughs> okay, so on in the parade of horribles. Uh, the second set of laws that were recently signed were a bunch of sweeping anti-trans bills in the state. So these were laws that restricted gender-affirming treatment for minors and adults, limitations on access to drag shows for minors, well, and, and all adult entertainment as well. And finally, Ron DeSantis rolls out a bathroom usage bill, as well as a bill that prevents how pronouns can be used in school. So literally, bills controlling the words that you can say the medicine you can receive, the entertainment you can watch, and the toilet you can pee in. So, tell me again, which party is the party of personal freedom? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, oh, oh God, it's Jesus overwhelming. Christ. It's so absurd. So, under the law, a, a bunch of things, a bunch of things are included in these laws. So, one, um, a court could intervene temporarily removing a child from their home if they receive gender-affirming treatment, which so, includes, like, puberty blockers, hormone replacements, and that those treatments uh, would count as child abuse. So state-sanctioned kidnapping. Okay. Exact yes, exactly. The, and again, these are things that, these are treatments that are supported by the American Medical Association. Right? This is a decision between you and your doctor. We're not talking about experimental. Ooh, maybe if I take out their kidneys, they'll live longer. No, this is like these are this is real medicine that these people are being denied, um, and that is being criminalized. And I mean, do we have to do we have to go through it again? Study after study has shown yeah. that gender affirming care for minors, you know, age appropriate, mm -hmm. mind you, gender affirming care for minors prevents suicide mm -hmm. this law means more dead children all right anytime any law restricts access to gender affirming care for minors it is a dead children law mm -hmm. yes exactly yeah and it it even goes so far as and make it possible for florida courts to modify child custody agreements from other states if the minor is likely to receive gender affirming care in the second state. So if, if like maybe you thought like, Oh, well maybe these parents are going to have to move out of Florida in order to seek gender affirming care. Literally, if, if there's a custody arrangement that touches Florida, they can reach into that other state and modify the agreement in order to prevent that child in another state from getting, getting gender affirming care. On top of this, one measure in these set of laws restricts adults seeking gender-affirming care and transgender medical treatment, right? So, so in one of the smaller restrictions, it only allows physicians to offer gender-affirming care, so not nurse practitioners um, and, you know, not other medical providers that are able to do that. So, but in an incredible overreach into the medical lives of people, even beyond uh, what we've come to expect from Florida— um, patients will be required to uh, receive written consent on a form um, that is overseen by two boards uh, made up of appointments by the governor. 
So like we're talking about like infringing on even adults' ability to access their medical care. So I think we need to take a second and look at that real quick because Mm -hmm. the argument from these people at the very beginning was, hey, you know, we're we're pro-freedom and all. It's just like, you know, we we have concerns about pushing this on your kids because like kids, they're too young. Like they're too young to know who they are. And, you know, we don't want them to we don't want them to go through some type of medical procedure that's going to alter them for life before they know who they are. Like it's not about discrimination. It's about protecting the kids. And an argument like that, when you don't look more in depth into how gender affirming care for minors actually works, an argument like that might sound appealing to people. But that was never what they were trying to do. Mm-hmm. It was always about discrimination. Yeah. It was always about discrimination against trans people. Yep. It was always about violating personal freedom. All right? So don't believe them when they say it's about protecting the children. That mm-hmm. is complete bullshit. First off, they're killing children. But second off, it's not just about children. It's about trans people. Yep. They're discriminating against trans people directly, and it's, and, it, and it's for some type of political gain. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, like, you can't get much more transparent than passing a fucking bathroom bill, right? Yeah. Which was recently passed in this sweeping, like, like slate of legislation. So basically, uh, it prohibits transgender people from using a bathroom or changing room that matches their gender identity while in government buildings, including schools, uh, prisons, and state universities. Literally regulating where you can pee. On top of that, it passed a bill that restricts the use of pronouns of choice in public schools by faculty and students. Literally, you can't have people call you a specific thing if like if if like the pronoun is is not what what was like is not like he, she and matches your biological sex. The bill declares that a person's sex is an immutable biological trait and that it is false to use a pronoun other than the sex on a person's birth certificate. How is that the government's, like, I how know. is that the government's business? No one is allowed to call you any other name except for your name. Signed, billed by someone named Ronald called Ron. <laughs> 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 like, it's just, it's fucking absurd. And it's, it sucks. It's fascistic. It's, it is straight up fascistic. Yeah, it absolutely is. And finally... The legislation uh, would threaten to take away licenses for establishments to operate if children are let into any adult live performance, which is largely interpreted as drag shows. So that's just the anti-trans stuff. Now we have the education stuff, (laughs) which is like, even like, it's so over the top. So, okay. A few things. The thing that's getting the most headlines is a bill that was recently passed that removes uh, public funding for or defunds diversity, equity, and inclusion programs at public colleges in Florida. So this particular bill does two big things and then a little thing that we'll talk about. Um, It directly prohibits diversity, equity, and inclusion programs and, and says that 
It prohibits any federal or state funds from being spent on these on programs that, quote, advocate for diversity, equity, and inclusion, or promote or engage in political or social activism. Thank God they are saving us from all that inclusion and equity and diversity. That What a shame. On top of that, the law prevents public colleges from offering general education courses that, quote, distort significant historical events or are, quote, based on theories that systemic racism, sexism, oppression, or privilege are inherent in the institutions of the United States and were created to maintain social, political, or economic inequalities. That's what you do to prove that there's no racism in America. Pass laws that make it so you can't talk about racism. That, exactly. that that's that's how you that's, that's how it. you prove that. L- yeah, literally preventing people from talking about like racism or sexism or oppression or privilege. Like, what are they going to teach in social like science classes? <laughs> it's gonna be like eight weeks to cover fucking all of them history <laughs> it's like that is it's like white so people, much of western white history. people came to america a bunch of indians mysteriously disappeared for reasons we have no idea we, we have but no we're idea unconnected to <laughs> uh white people had some workers who happened to be black that were very gracious to you know to pick their crops for them um and then there was a random war where people fought each other over like, you know, tariffs or whatever, you know, it was called the civil war. It was, and it was just tariffs and, you know, some other civil disputes or whatever, but you know, it was no big deal. Um, and then, uh, then those black people suddenly stopped picking all of those crops and started being more included in society because I, I look, I, I don't know how you're going to fucking teach that without teaching about racism. Like I'm, I'm, tr- I was actually, I was literally like, Dude, trying to, you're joking to, I'm joking, but, but like how, how, but that's the thing that's like, it's beyond parody. That's exactly yeah. what's happening. Like, like think, I think we talked about this one time on the show, but there was, there's a book, a social studies book for, I think elementary schoolers that talked about the Rosa Parks story. Have you heard about this? No, I haven't. Originally, the text in the book talked about Rosa Parks, you know, like uh, enacting civil disobedience, refusing to move to the back of the bus where she was required to sit because of her race, right? This is now the text of that book when discussing the Rosa Parks story in order to avoid the discussion of race in schools. Quote, Rosa Parks showed courage. One day she rode the bus. She was told to move to a different seat. She did not. She did what she believed was right. Wow. Yep. Wow. Your jokes that they would just leave that out is exactly what's being taught in Florida schools at this point because of laws like this. And now it's beyond even... Fuck, you know, don't get any ideas from me. Don't get any ideas. That <laughs> yeah. was a joke. <laughs> now it's beyond Ron, K through 12. Ron DeSantis, I, I I know you're probably listening. I know you're a huge fan of the show. You know, but don't get any ideas yeah. from what I just said. That was a joke. Yep. And yeah, now they are prohibiting this at this Jesus. kind of like teaching at the fucking college yeah. level. God, I 
look, I hate it when they pass law, like like when idiots pass laws about like what you can teach in elementary schools and, mm-hmm. and like in grade school and shit. But it, I seethe when yeah. they fuck with universities. Yeah. For personal reasons. <laughs> but also but also societal ones. Universities yeah. are so often a transition point. It's yeah. the time when you are taken out of the bubble you've spent your whole life in and you get exposed to the world. And to 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 take that environment and dilute it and pervert it so much that it no longer represents the world. Yeah. Is to destroy the value of that experience and largely the value of higher education in the liberal arts. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I would just like to point out, I got exposed to so many different points of view in college. And in fact, I actually got exposed to much more intelligent versions of conservative arguments mm-hmm. yes. than I had ever heard at home. Thanks. Like, <laughs> well, I'm just joking. <laughs> if you know the history of the pre- show, you know why present, that's a joke. Present company excluded. Perfect, perfect. <laughs> present company excluded. Um, but like, you know, I, I most people back where I lived made the the dumbest regurgitation of talking points. Yeah, of course. When they were advocating for specific conservative arguments, again, present company excluded. And when I got to college, I was actually exposed. Like, obviously I had plenty of professors that were more on the liberal side, but Mm -hmm. I had plenty of professors that were also more on the conservative side and plenty of professors that spent a lot of, like in my political science classes that spent time talking about conservative politics and discussing like political philosophy from Mm -hmm. a conservative point of view that was way more intelligent and way more like reasonable sounding than anything I'd ever heard. Yeah. College is the time where you should be exposed to multiple different viewpoints. Like I'm not saying that there isn't some cause for concern when professors go out of their way to make sure that their own ideology dominates the talking of the class. Yeah, it's a bad class. Like, but college is about, especially in the humanities, college is about discussion. Yeah. It's about arguments. It's about smart engagement. Mm -hmm. And by limiting engagement, which, by the way, you're always talking about the fact that limiting engagement is detrimental to a society in the context of free speech. You're always talking about that. Fucking live your values for yeah, once. Yeah, dude, they literally just passed a law to to enforce that, but only for basically their point of view. Yeah. It's remarkable. So I just have one more thing to say about these courses, right? So people can still major in like African-American studies, gender studies, the concepts that are largely prohibited at these schools. But the board of governors for each, for the universities are required to review the programs and curriculum and identify any that run afoul of the laws, which makes the worry that even in classes that are supposed to touch on these concepts, that there will be a chilling effect on this these teachings, which is exactly clearly what the bill intends. DeSantis literally said that students who want to study, quote, niche subjects, such as critical race theory, ought to look elsewhere. Florida's getting out of the game. It's literally meant to just take these classes out of anybody's curriculum. And how do you become a how do you become an African American studies major or a gender studies major? 
you learn about it in your other classes. And then you it piques your interest. And then you go learn about them more. Like the the clear intention here is to remove these concepts from the curriculum and just reduce the quality of education in Florida. And again, it started out as, oh, we're removing this stuff from, mm -hmm. you know, from grade school to protect mm -hmm. the children. But that's never what it was about. It was always about trying to control the education. Yeah. Because when you control the education, you control the minds of the future. So now it's time for a segment that's a more recent invention, Beyond the Talking Points. So Nathan, what's, what's the Beyond the Talking Points segment about? Well, Michael, Beyond the Talking Points is a segment that we made because there's often talking points that permeate through the media and are commonly repeated by politicians or by, uh, by commentators or beliefs that are held by the general public that if you spend just a little bit of time looking into them or thinking about them, you realize, huh, that is complete bullshit. <laughs> so, Michael, what talking points are we going beyond today? The talking point we're going beyond today is Republicans are the party of fiscal conservatism. But so, they're, but hold on, but they're the economically conservative party. So hmm. obviously they're more responsible, right? Interesting. Interesting. You should say so. Good thing we're going beyond that talking point today, isn't it? <laughs> okay. So let's quickly define what a fiscal conservative is. Fiscal conservative advocates for small government and low taxes, but is open to higher taxes if it's necessary to erase deficits. So why are Republicans not the party of fiscal conservatism? The problem is that they are so anti-tax and so pro-business that they directly drive up the deficit and explode the budget every single time they're in power. Now, back in the 80s, they claimed that the tax cuts would pay for themselves, but they have never, ever done that, not even once, and no one believes that they will ever. Yeah. They made that argument when they passed the Trump tax cuts. Mm -hmm. They came out and said that it will produce so much extra revenue that it will completely pay for itself. And what happened? The deficit exploded to like a trillion dollars. Yep. And what's hilarious is that recently, like I, I actually saw an interview with McCarthy where he even went back and said, like someone called him out for the tax cuts and he was like, oh, well, those, you know, those produce so much revenue they paid for themselves. No, they, no didn't. they didn't. <laughs> no, they didn't. In that fact, is a, an objectively false statement. In fact, one analysis when comparing Democrats to Republicans found that Republican presidents are estimated to add between 0.75% and 1.2% more to the deficit as a percent of GDP for each year they're in office than Democrats do. Ultimately, Republicans are not the party of fiscal conservatism because they're so anti-tax and pro-business that they reduce the taxes, explode the budget, and add more to the deficit than Democrats do. And not to mention, they're always looking to inflate the military budget. Yeah, and they add that. <laughs> to be fair, so are Democrats, though. Yeah. And that's, so that's beyond, beyond the talking, talking points. points. So for our next segment, we're starting a bit of a new format for some parts of our show. Nathan and I have a fair amount of expertise in our respective areas, um, but we're not always able to show it off. Uh, and 
we're not always able to, you know, talk about subjects that we cover, partly because we're professionals. Yeah. Um, and so we're doing special segments where one of us is the novice and one of us is the expert. For this yeah. one, we're referring to Professor Nathan. Now, Professor Nathan, would you prefer to go by uh, Professor Seelove or, or, or Nathan or Professor Nathan? I'm going to tell you what I tell my students every single time on the first day of class. Um, my name is Nathan Seelove. It is okay to just call me Nathan, but I understand that you all have been raised in the neoliberal hierarchy that is America. And that hierarchy has taught you to refer to those standing in the front of the room by titles such as professor or mister. So if, because of that upbringing, you so choose to refer to me as Professor Seelove or Mr. Seelove, or if you want to compromise and make it Professor Nathan, you may do so. But it is totally okay to just call me Nathan. <laughs> okay. I actually say that. I love that. I actually that. say that. <laughs> I love that. Okay, well, I'm going to call you Professor Nathan because uh, at this point you're standing in the front of the room and I'm going to ask you some questions about the topic. So today we're talking about objectivity in the media. So to yep. start off, what does it mean for the media to be objective? Well, so let's let's first look at the definition of objectivity. So the definition of objectivity from the Oxford English Dictionary is the fact of not being influenced by personal feelings or opinions, but considering only facts. So as mm. it stands, and I'm going to kind of steel man the argument for the media side, mm -hmm. as it stands, the idea is that the media should just be calling balls and strikes, right? Mm. That there are objective realities that exist within politics, that exist within political information. And it's the media's job to disseminate those objective facts to their audience without any personal feelings, without any opinions, without any further analysis, without additional context, because additional context and additional analysis drips into opinion territory. Hmm. I feel like that seems like kind of a good thing. Right? Yep. Isn't like uh, objectively reflecting the facts kind of inherently good? Well, I'm glad you asked, Michael, <laughs> because I'm going to make a bold claim that I, I, I actually do hope that when everybody hears this, and, and you included, when you hear this, that you're immediately skeptical about it, because you should be, mm -hmm. because this is a bold claim. So people are always talking about how the biggest problem within media is the lack of objectivity, namely all of the partisan bias that exists in the media, which constricts the view of the media into these narrow focuses where they're regurgitating t partisan talking points and thus misinforming the public. I feel like I would fall into that camp. Here is the argument that I'm going to make. Partisan bias in the media is probably the least detrimental and least interesting type of bias hmm. that exists in the media. And in fact, the push for objectivity does way more damage than partisan bias ever has and ever will. There's my bold claim. Oh my God. I just want the audience to know that th I am also hearing this claim for the first time because we're, <laughs> what we're doing for these segments is no preview discussions. So yes. 
call me fucking skeptical. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I don't know how you're gonna. I don't know how you're gonna pull this one through. <laughs> um, I'll defend it. I'll yeah. Defend it. Okay. So, and, and I would just like to be clear. Yeah, I'm specifying the push for objectivity, not okay. object objectivity itself. Hmm. The push for objectivity. Okay. So, I think that that leads right into another question I have. Okay. So I feel like objectivity in the media is driven by journalists. Like if I think about like the typical, like archetypical journalist type, it's like someone wanting to find out the truth, kick butt, speak truth to power, all that stuff. And I'm not sure how a push by journalists for objectivity would be a problem. Well, I would just like to point something out. You you're, you're talking about speaking truth to power, but yeah. speaking truth to power by necessity requires further analysis and, to some extent, hmm. a level of opinion. Interesting. So the push for objectivity often does just lead to a regurgitation of the standard line from the government. Hmm. So let me, let, me give you a, let me give you an example. Um, and I believe that we actually talked about this example on the pod when it happened. Uh, remember during the Afghanistan pullout, mm -hmm. there was a drone strike that was committed against uh, someone who the government claimed was an ISIS terrorist cell. Mm -hmm. All right. It was, it was this guy who was driving through, through Kabul and they, this, this surveillance drone was seeing that he was loading stuff into his car and he was driving to suspicious places that they thought was a was an isis um uh, safe house mm -hmm. and then as he was pulling into his house uh the drone decided to decided to launch a bomb at him and it killed him now the initial line from the government was that there was a terrifying terrorist who was about to do terrorism and we stopped him so yay us Mm -hmm. The media basically regurgitated that and to some extent, in some cases, took it a little bit farther hmm. because the initial line was that the only people that died were the intended targets. And then it was revealed that there were 10 people that died, including children. So 10 family members, including seven children, were killed in the strike. And mm -hmm. the government didn't acknowledge that. But what the government did say eventually was that they believed that there was a bomb inside the car that created a secondary explosion. Therefore, the children were not killed by the by the bomb launched by the, the drone. They were killed by a secondary explosion. Hmm. And that was the official line that was regurgitated by the media. And it wasn't until about a week later that uh, the New York Times did a really great in-depth investigative piece where they actually sent over experts to look around hmm. to question the government line to disagree with what the government was saying and actually find the truth. Hmm. Now, the reason why the initial the initial article was reported the way that it was is because when it comes to the media, disagreeing with officials leads to accusations of bias. Interesting. And it infringes on their ability to seem objective. Hmm. So the New York Times went out of their way to to try to look deeper and to prove them wrong. But other organizations, for the sake of objectivity, reported the news as so-and-so Pentagon official said. And it is an objective fact that so-and-so Pentagon official said that, hmm. but what they said was not true. Oh my gosh. Okay. So if I'm if I'm understanding this correctly, 
if all of them were being truly objective, that would mean like one thing, but it would also have to be really effective. It would also have to include other stuff like analysis, investigation, all that extra stuff. But the problem is that they want to seem objective more and, and be truly objective, but not thorough more than they want to be accurate. And so to your point, the the ability for them to say to report on what people say so that they can be objective like to the letter but not to like the truth enables yeah. them to seem objective and claim objectivity without yeah. actually having to bear the responsibility of finding the truth. Yeah. And I love how you I love how you distinguish between facts and truth right there because mm. there is an important difference. Yeah. All right. It is a fact that a Pen that Pentagon officials said that this was an mm. ISIS per this was an ISIS person. Turns out they were a fucking aid worker. Sure. Gotcha. And what they were loading into their car was not bombs, it was water. Hmm. Um, so the water caused a secondary explosion that killed the family. Yeah. Well, what's interesting <laughs> is the New York Times, the New York Times even sent an explosive an explosives expert mm -hmm. to look at the shockwaves and they only found evidence of one shockwave, which meant one explosion. Oh my gosh. And uh, and so so the, the the point is, it is a fact that a Pentagon official said that this was an ISIS cell. Hmm. This was an ISIS person, but it is not truth because it is not true that this person was an ISIS person. Interesting. And the focus on facts over truth, because truth can lead to accusations of bias, hmm. ends up preventing them from actually reporting in-depth analysis, and it leads to another thing. Another very common practice in the media that's referred to as fragmentation. Hmm. Okay. So fragmentation is basically when the media takes some type of story or event and reports it as its own isolated incident, mm. its own separate thing that happened. The problem is... You're not giving context. Sure. So it's to, almost like nothing in the world happened in isolation for the first time by itself, except like the Big Bang. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So, so because again, the push for objectivity prevents the media from further analysis because mm. analysis can be can potentially be. Uh, you know, be called out for bias, mm -hmm. what the media does is they create a formula where they just show you, they, they have an article that says the who, the what, the where, the when, and the why. Mm -hmm. They put that in an article, they don't contextualize it, and then they put that out there. Which means that you might know, mm -hmm. um, you know, a story of, uh, of Joe Biden with, um, with, uh, Saudi Arabia Crown Prince uh, Ben Salman in the White House to discuss international relations. Mm -hmm. But you know nothing from that. Yeah. All right? Yeah. You know nothing from that. Maybe mm. maybe they would even throw in to discuss, uh, you know, to discuss Yemen mm -hmm. specifically. All right? Without the further context of, number one, the genocide in Yemen. Number mm. two, the constant weapons deals that we keep giving to Saudi Arabia, mm -hmm. without that further context, you would look at that and think, well, nothing to see here. Yeah. But if you gave that context, again, you're going to be accused of not being objective. I've like 
getting like chills because I'm like thinking about this stuff. So you're like sparking so many thoughts in my head. So this is so interesting. Basically, in order for them to like seem objective, to keep their articles short, to like do the news journalism formula, they are offloading the responsibility of context and to and information basically for their articles to be informed to their reader. As a reader, you have to go look up why the fuck are they talking about Yemen? So in order for them to like have like their formula and their their factual facial objectivity, right? They're like it's true on its prima facie, right? It's true on its face. They don't go into all of the context, all the information you will need in order to digest and interpret this information, which this is so interesting because it's like inherent in, it seems like inherent in um, like news as a business formula, news as a, as a model, because it's like, what do we need? We need to seem objective so that people will read us, which means we need to be able to always claim that the things we have claimed are true. Boom, that's your first formula. Pentagon official said X. And then second formula, what do we need? We need to keep people's attention. We need to keep it short and we need to stick to the facts. Therefore, cut out context. And mm-hmm. like that. Yep. And, and the other thing is, as I'm reflecting on the way I read news articles, there are some journalism, some organizations out there that regularly put in a ton of context into their articles. Yes. The Atlantic, yes. Salon, the New Republic. ProPublica. Repu- yeah, yeah, ProPublica. Pro as a consumer of news... I approach those articles more skeptically. <laughs> I will read those articles and and trust them less because I'm used to someone basically writing down the bullet points. I love Axiom's articles because they are fact, 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 done. But to your point, that's a defect, not a bug or not a feature. Yeah. Yeah. And here's the other thing. And this is something that I'm sure most people have noticed, but they probably haven't thought about too much. Have you ever noticed that if you read one article about a specific event, you've probably read them all? <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. Because gosh. they mostly just say the same thing? Dude, yes. With this DeSantis thing, I was like trying to find other articles about the, the diversity, equi- yeah. equity, and inclusion thing. And it was 30 articles that had the same headline. Exactly. That is the point. That is the point. Once they have that formula of who, what, where, when, why mm. as, as, as their, as their standard operating procedure. If you read one article, you've read it all mm. because they're not being analytical about it. They're just saying, here are the facts. Mm. And, you know, perhaps here are the things that we objectively know are facts. Maybe that's, maybe that's a good thing, mm-hmm. but as we know, facts without context can be just as detrimental as straight up lies. Yeah. Statistics without context, without explanation, without analysis, yeah. can be just as detrimental as straight up lies. There's a reason why we read the methodology portions of the studies when we try it, when we talk about them. Because like shitty studies, which have facts in them <laughs> that are true, can be, yeah. can be just as detrimental as fake, you know, information. Wow. Yeah. Okay, so we've talked about like objectivity and like tied it to like media today and like the push for short firm accuracy, blah, 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 all that stuff. But like it didn't always have to be this way, right? Like what, how did we get here? What's the history that led us to like this push for objectivity and expectation like that? The short answer is capitalism. Damn it. Here, 
That's just <laughs> fill in the blank. <laughs> here's, here's the long answer. So a lot of people might assume that objective journalism arose because of some type of inner moral imperative of a bunch of companies that thought, mm. I want to make sure that the world knows how star-spangled awesome I am. Mm. So I'm going to create these standards that everybody needs to follow so that, you know, to, to, to uphold the highest form of, of professionalism or morality or the whatever. The fourth estate. Of, We've endowed it with like a special name. Yeah, yeah. So here's why that's bullshit. So <laughs> in the early days of the United States, partisan newspapers were actually very common. Hmm. In fact, they were necessary for political parties hmm. because there was actually a very firmly established unwritten rule that politicians were not supposed to directly campaign to people. Interesting. All right. Hmm. They weren't supposed to do that. Instead, the mouthpiece of political parties was supposed to be the newspapers that they helped fund. Okay. And Thomas Jefferson actually believed that that was, he actually thought that was a good thing. And that's one of the reasons why freedom of the press was so important as part of the First Amendment. Because what, what Thomas Jefferson believed was that if you have a bunch of newspapers that are argumentative in nature, mm -hmm. that go out to the publics, that the public will be exposed to as many different points of view hmm. as possible and come at it with an informed idea. Sunlight's the best in disinfectant kind of thing. And furthermore, yeah. it requires a set of skills. Hmm. You can report what happened objectively, but if you argue it, if you make a good argument, if you go through the in-depth analysis of a political event, you explain it, you contextualize it, and you argue it, that requires a completely different set of skills mm. and a very valuable set of skills. Basically, the ability to argue for your point of view as a newspaper was a valuable set of skills that political parties took advantage of. Mm. However, that started to change when politicians specifically presidential candidates uh, after the Andrew Jackson era, started to take their cases directly to the people. Hmm. And what happened was that the funding for those papers, which at the time was mostly a bunch of local papers, started to dry up. Hmm. And in order to stay in business, newspapers had to find another funding source. And they found it in advertisement. Hmm. And the issue is... Advertisement, whereas political party funding doesn't really depend on sales as much because you're being funded by a you know by an institution. Yeah, institutions that are interested in getting in, like information and point of view out there as a good in itself. Yeah, but when it's advertisement, when advertising hmm. is your business model, yeah, it's less about getting information out there and more about providing a product in the cheapest possible way and selling it to as many people as possible. Mm. And a and there were a lot of factors that ended up contributing to this. You know, there were factors of um, you know, inventions such as the telegraph that was able to get information uh to multiple different places around the country. Mm -hmm. There was um 
uh, eventually, of course, the the invention of the telephone. There was the invention of transportation Mm -hmm. that allowed for centralized information to be distributed wider to the country. Mm. You know, the the creation of the Associated Press in 1848, Mm. where there was a centralized information network that needed a way to transport their message to the largest number of people possible. Mm-hmm. And here's the thing. When you're partisan, the people that you're often targeting are a niche audience. Yeah. But when you are politically neutral, you appeal to a wider audience. Hmm. And because they defend, these newspapers depended on advertisers for their funding, they also had to depend on newspaper sales in order to stay yep. in business. Yep. And if you want to maximize the number of newspapers that are being sold, you have to make sure that they appeal to the widest audience. And that was the start of objective journalism. It had nothing to do with you know, a specific set of journalistic standards, and it had everything to do with appealing to the widest possible crowd. Hmm. That's how it started. And as journalism started to expand and become more centralized, because again, in the early days of the Republic, it was... It was more localized. As it became more centralized, it started to become more of a profession, which meant that the standards that, by the way, they had done initially out of necessity, started to become part of their practice. Hmm. And it allowed them, as they as they expanded more, it allowed them to create it as more of a profession, so allowing it to be taught in universities and colleges. Um, and again, when they were taught at that university level... They were teaching them the same skills, the same uh, standards that they had been using in order to make the uh, to to make journalism what it was, which again meant neutrality mm. and objectivity. The, the 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 rhetoric of objectivity started to originate more in the in the 1920s, when you had tabloids, which were often more utilized by uh, you know by poor working class people. Mm-hmm. And your so-called objective, uh, objective newspapers that were more focused on here are the specific facts of the situation. And it was actually considered a status thing to have those types of papers. So marketing them as objective was a huge part of trying to appeal to this intellectual elite and hmm. financial elite that, had, that started to be created in the 1920s. Hmm. So to recap, the idea of objectivity was purely made to make it easier to print the stories because as we talked about earlier it is very easy to just write a story that's the who the what the where the when and the why than it is to actually spend time analyzing it and contextualizing it and the reason why we have those objective standards is not because of ethics it's not because of morality it is purely because That is what helped them sell more papers to a wider audience. And now it's time for one of our favorite segments, the D-Bag Awards. So, Nathan, what is a D-Bag Award? We do the D-Bag Award because we like to provide some type of award for people that make an argument that is just so beautifully self-defeating and stupid that we just have to drag it out point at it and laugh at it. And of course, the D-bag is short for the Dershowitz bag, which is named after Alan Dershowitz for that fateful time that he stood in front of the Congress and proclaimed 
that Donald Trump couldn't have possibly done anything that rose to the level of of impeachment when he tried to pressure a foreign government to to help him uh, to help him in an election because he believed that it was in the nation's best interest for him to win that election. <laughs> All right, so I I got to call bullshit. There's no way that we found someone as dumb as Alan Dershowitz. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> All right, who who is it? Who is it? I'll be the judge. It's uh Prager use Dennis Prager. Mm. Oh, Denny Prague, come on I down. I forgot about Prager U when I said no one's as dumb as Dennis, uh, <laughs> Alan Dershowitz. <laughs> Shit. All right, so what did, uh, what did he do to get on our show? So uh, he was... Um... So he he was he was on a show and he was it seems like he, he he was talking to one of his callers about uh I think it was like the 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 morality of of Christianity mm-hmm. versus paganism in 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 early history and you know he was trying to make the argument that Christianity came around and you know they were like hey uh human sacrifices are now wrong and all the and, he, and he's like and all these pagans believed that human sacrifice was good, so therefore Christianity was more was more moral. And the the caller pointed out, uh, "Hey, dude, um, uh, the Crusades called, mm-hmm. and uh, what the fuck?" Yeah, I have a I have someone a friend on the line here. It's uh, it's the <laughs> it's like murderous talk, talk, Christian invasion of the Middle East. <laughs> yeah, it's like talk about talk about human sacrifice. Was that not human sacrifice? Mm-hmm. And Dennis Prager's response was, "Quote." I've never understood why the Crusades were inherently immoral. Hmm. What? All the raping and murder. (laughs) Yeah, uh, that might be it. The fact that, like, thousands and thousands of people were killed because they didn't have the same religious beliefs. Mm -hmm. And, like, his argument, his argument right after that is basically, oh, well, you know, the the Muslims came and, and took the Holy Land from Christians at one point, and they were just trying. They were just trying to take it back. They were just trying to take it's it back. Chill, dude. You know. And and then he was like, so so if you said this was immoral, you'd have to say that that all of that you know many wars throughout history have been immoral. You'd have to say like he brought up Hiroshima, and it's like okay, you just. <laughs> so your argument is. If you say that killing innocents during the Crusades was immoral, then you also have to say that killing innocents is always immoral. And it's clearly not, because remember that time that we launched a fucking nuclear bomb and killed hundreds of thousands of people in like two seconds? That was clearly moral. So like, obviously then the Crusades were moral. Bro. Wrong way, dude. You you reversed Bro. it. The wrong direction. No. The no. morality <laughs> flows the other way. <laughs> no, no, dude. If you melt the people, it's moral. <laughs> Jesus. How you, That's you, you fucking pick one of the crazy one of the most horrific war crimes ever committed in history to then compare to another one of the biggest war crimes that was ever committed in history. Yeah. And to claim like, I, that neither of them were war crimes. And again, this was all based on him trying to establish that judo Christianity um is like a is an important moral driver. Like it's mm-hmm. it's how it's the only way that you can be perfectly moral. And apparently like judo Christianity has told you that killing hundreds of thousands of people with a nuclear bomb was moral. If that's the case, dude, you got some fucked up values. Yeah. 
And in that case, it wasn't even about Christianity. That's the other thing. It's like one yeah. thing if like you just believe that anything that Christians do is moral, which is obviously ridiculous. But in this case, like it wasn't about Christianity, which leads me to the question, do you think it's just good to kill innocent people in war? Is that just the good thing that he likes? Yeah. <laughs> this yeah. guy is wow. Okay. All right, yeah. you got me. And I, you got me. And, and I'd also like to I'd also like to point out one other thing. So your argument is that if at some point in history the land belongs to one group of people <laughs> and another group of people comes in and takes over the land from that group of people, mm-hmm. that that original group of people is completely justified in massacring the civilians of that new of those new people. Bro, you live in America. Yeah. I wouldn't make that argument if I yeah. were you. <laughs> Yeah, we got to go all the way back to the beginning. We got to find the original person or or original dinosaur, whoever started it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. What a self-defeating argument. What a D-bag. Holy shit. I can't believe he did it. He did it. So Mm. congratulations to Dennis Prager for being this week's D-bag. So now we'll wrap up our show as we usually do. So first off, Nathan... What's your highlight this week? I'm on summer. Woo! I'm on summer. I am finally done with school. Mm. Um, I turned in my grades. I am officially on summer break. And it was a long semester. It was a good semester, but it was a long semester. And I am so happy to have some, some time to just spend sitting around watching good place with my wife reading with my wife just (laughs) chilling playing video games yeah it's 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 awesome (laughs) that is awesome that sounds great too yeah what about you mike's what's what's your highlight i think my highlight is this past weekend um so some of you may know we moved to seattle not that long ago my wife and i did with our dog and Um, we've been like slowly getting to know people in Seattle and making friends and all that stuff. And last weekend, we just had a weekend full of hanging out with friends and like new people that we had just met for the first time. And it was super fun as an extrovert. And it was, yeah, it was just, it was wonderful. It was a really fun weekend and it was great to, to have some friends in the area. Nice. Nice. Yeah, it was wonderful. And so now we have to thank all of the people that make this incredible show run. So thank you to our amazing patrons, Jerry DeViller, Taylor Bloom, Fade Out Scoop, Kyle Cheska, and Tobias Janssen for all they do to make it possible. And our incredible editor, Kayla, for all they do to, uh, to turn this show from the crap that Nathan and I put out into something beautiful. And if you would like to hear more of this uh, beautiful show, you can find us on YouTube at youtube.com slash The Perspectrum. And with that, dear listener, we have to thank you for listening to The Perspectrum, and you can hear from us again next week. <laughs>